Let me pray and then we'll, we'll get into our text for today. Um, Father, thank you so much for uh, your word. And Lord, thank you that, um, thank you for all that we've learned through Joshua. Thank you for all the challenges it's given us. And Father, I pray that we really would learn to be strong and courageous. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we finally did it. After 13 weeks, uh, we've now finally come to the end of Joshua. And at the end, we're left with a challenge. Earlier this week, I was talking to my brother-in-law, and he was telling me that when he was a teenager, he worked at uh, like a local fast food restaurant. And those of you who had jobs like this, you probably did the same thing. But they had a, a challenge that they would undergo every time they worked. And it was to see how many times you could fit the word meow into an interaction with a customer. And what they do is, you know, the person would stand at the register and take an order, and then someone would kind of stand off to the side, just counting as they did it to see who did the most in one interaction in one day. So they'd say things like, uh, meow, how can I help you meow today? Uh, would you meow like fries with that meow? And they would just see how many times they could work that in. Uh, and so Joshua's, that was a, that's a pretty trivial challenge, let's be honest. Um, Joshua's challenge is not so trivial. Uh, it's, not, it's not so light and funny as that. Uh, because what we come to in Joshua 24 is actually Joshua's last address to the nation. So this is the last time he's going to talk to everyone. And uh, at the very center of what he says to them are these words. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Choose for yourselves this day whom you'll serve. And when he does that, he actually hits on the core questions of what it is actually to be human. Uh, you know those questions that everyone's tried to answer from the dawn of time, and everyone tries to answer it individually. We've tried to answer it as societies throughout history. Here's the two questions. Who am I, and what am I here for? Those are two questions every human being is trying to answer. Who am I, and what am I here for? Every philosophy, every religion, every worldview has tried to come up with, with an answer to those. And actually, the degree to which a person can answer those two questions is the degree to which you can have a foundation for your life. Uh, you, in other words, you can have a purpose in your life. You, you know why you're living. You know why you're doing everything you're doing and why you don't do certain things. Uh, in other words, the answer to those questions gives you a foundation and a purpose that actually gives you the strength and courage to weather all of life's storms and challenges and questions. And Joshua, he presents those questions actually in the form of this challenge. So he doesn't come with those questions. He, just, he actually comes with a challenge. He says, choose for yourselves this day whom you'll serve. And we'll dig into this, but what he's saying is, choose the God who you will worship. Choose the God who you'll worship. Because at our core, humans, human beings are all worshipers. Even if you think you're an atheist, you're a worshiper of something. We all worship someone or something. And whoever or whatever you worship is what will give you the answer to those two questions. Who am I and what am I here for? And so what Joshua is really getting at is a question of identity. Like, what's your central identity? Who are you at your core? For the Christian, it would be, the answer to those questions would be or should be, because Christians have been giving the same answer for hundreds of years now. Uh, who am I? I am a loved child of God. What am I here for? To worship God and to enjoy him forever. That's the, the answer to those questions that Christians have been giving for hundreds of years. Who am I? I'm a loved child of God. What am I here for? 
to worship God and to enjoy him forever. And if that's the foundation for your life, to know that you're loved by God, to worship and to enjoy him, and actually it gives you the purpose, it, it gives you the strength and the courage that you need to walk through all of life. But the only way you can get there, the only way you can get there is to have the kind, the kind of foundation, uh, the purpose and strength of your life is actually to, to decide who you believe Jesus Christ to be. That's the only way you can get there is to decide who it is that Jesus Christ is. You have to deal with him. You actually have to come to grips with, with who you believe him to be and then respond accordingly to that belief. In other words, choose. Choose for yourself this day. And the thing is, you can't be neutral about Jesus Christ. It's impossible to be neutral about him because of what he claimed. He claims to be the Son of God in the flesh. And so you can't just say he was a good moral teacher or merely an inspirational figure. You guys know I quote C.S. Lewis all the time. Let me, let me quote a sort of longer passage uh, from his book, Mere Christianity. Here's what he says about how everyone has to deal with this question of who Jesus is. He says, uh, I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something else. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human moral teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So if you're not yet a Christian, you have to make a choice. Either he's a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's the Lord. There's no middle ground. And so Joshua's challenge that he makes, that he gives to Israel at the end of his life, is also for you. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. And if you're a Christian already, it's possible. It's possible that he's your Savior, but not your Lord. I'm pretty sure that for the first two or three years I was a Christian. I really was a Christian. I really was saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I really was a saved person. But Jesus Christ wasn't yet my Lord. I didn't yet give him my full allegiance. He was my Savior, but I was my Lord. And I'm also certain that there have been many days, even seasons of my life, where I took back from Jesus the position of Lord. And I gave it to myself, or I gave it to something or someone other than him. And therefore, Joshua's challenge is relevant for those of us who are Christians as well. Choose for yourselves this day who you'll serve. And this challenge Joshua gives, and the way he frames it, gives us then a guide to wrestle with the question of Jesus Christ. And so using Joshua's challenge as a guide, here's the question. Is Jesus Christ Lord? And if he is, is he yours? Now, we're going to dig into Joshua's challenge of <clears throat> choose for yourself this day. And we'll do it under three headings. So first, 
uh, the framing of the challenge. He frames it really interestingly. Then he gives the challenge itself. And then we'll finish by the challenge to fear and faithfulness. So look first at how he frames the challenge. Here's the challenge in full. Look again at verse 15. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your, ans- whether the gods of your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. So that's the challenge in full. Choose whether or not you'll serve the Lord or another God. Uh, but I want you to notice how the book frames the challenge. Like what, look, Notice what comes before this challenge and notice what comes after. It's framed with history and with death. Uh, so first, let's look at the history. In verses 1 to 13, we're not going to get into that in detail. Um, but what does Joshua do? He recounts Israel's entire national history up to this point. He, he, he talks about the whole thing, from Abraham all the way up to where they are now. Now, what's he doing when he does this? In essence, it's like he's taking them to the National History Museum. He's taking them on tour to all the important locations of their past. Uh, a few years ago, I had the privilege of being able to travel to some of the places of my heroes. And uh, one of those heroes was, was Martin Luther. And so we went to Germany and we did a little bit. Uh, Emmy was so gracious, I kind of drug her along as we went to all these like important historical sites where Martin Luther, the great reformer, lived and did his work. And uh, we actually were in, in Wittenberg and we went to a little service at the castle church. That's what, that's what everyone wants to do on vacation on like a Wednesday afternoon, go to a church service. <laughs> but I couldn't resist. They were putting on this, this church service at the castle church in Wittenberg where Luther, it's, it, it is the place where he nailed the 95 theses to the door. He used to preach from the pulpit in that church. And so I couldn't resist. And so we go in and they were asking for volunteers to do the Bible reading for the service. And I was like a kid in a candy store. I like ran to the front and I was like, I'll read. And I got to read from the book of Romans in the castle church in Wittenberg, where Luther probably preached through Romans during the Reformation. And so not only does recounting history bring it alive, but it actually makes it tangible. It makes it true. And so as I stood in Wittenberg, he really did nail the 95 theses on that door right over there. And as as we went and toured uh, Wartburg Castle, he really did hide out in this room that we went into. And and he translated the Bible in like a year in this room. and, And I'm standing right there. And so history done well not only informs but it inspires. History done well actually propels a person forward. And this is what Joshua is attempting to do as he recounts the national history of Israel. And so here they are, they're standing at a crossroads. And which way will they go? Right, left, forward, backward. Now, the challenge we face in our current cultural moment is that we don't think much about the past. We're not great historians. Everything in our culture at the moment is oriented towards the present. And so what do I think right now? How do I feel right now? And we only think about the present tense. And the answers to those questions in the present tense, what do I think right now? How do I feel right now? That's what ends up driving us. 
And I've mentioned this before, but it's worth saying it again and again and again, because these are the waters that we swim in. This is the air that we breathe. Uh, actually, you know, David Foster Wallace, he famously started a commencement address at Kenyon College with a parable about three fish. Do you know this? Uh, it goes like this, if you don't. Two younger fish are swimming along, and they pass an older, wiser, more experienced fish who says to the two younger fish, more and boys, how's the water? And the two younger fish swim on for a bit, and one says to the other, what the heck is water? When something's your entire world, when it's your culture, oftentimes you can't see it. And our culture is now almost entirely shaped by present tense social media. It's our whole culture. That's where every culture maker is exerting their influence. But, but notice this, think about it. Every form of social media that we use is concerned only with the present tense. Instagram is this way, TikTok is this way, uh, even the Facebook is this way. All of them care only about the present tense. All of them care, all of them want you to care only about the present. They actually stop you from looking at old posts. Because when you catch up, it's like, oh, we'll just give you a bunch of ads of things you might want right now, instead of here's what happened yesterday. And listen, it's incredibly hard to make good decisions about not only the present, but the future without a history. It's incredibly difficult. Without being a historian on some level, you are destined to make poor decisions about the present and about the future. So what does Joshua do to frame his challenge? How does he help them make a good choice? What does he do? It is history. And to frame this into our bigger question, what do you believe about Jesus Christ? Where do you stand with Christianity? Listen to this. Here's what Christianity does for you. History, Christianity gives you a history. That when a person becomes a Christian, they get put into a stream of history that stretches back millennia. And so your history, you won't know all of these names, but your history now becomes Elizabeth Elliot's history. It also is Billy Graham's, and it's C.S. Lewis's, and it's Corey Ten Boom's, and it's Charles Spurgeon's, and it's John Wycliffe's, and it's Jan Huss's. And I could keep going, but we'll jump back a few hundred more years, and it's Augustine's, it's Gregory's, leading you all the way back to the apostles, and further back to Malachi, and to Hosea, and to Daniel, and David, and Ruth, and Esther, and Rahab, and Joshua, and Moses, and Joseph, and Jacob, and Isaac, and Abraham. All of that history becomes yours when you become a Christian. When a person becomes a Christian, that history belongs to you. And the more we recount and grasp that history, the better decisions we will make about today and tomorrow. Now, if you've read the Bible at all, especially if you've read the Old Testament, how many times in the Old Testament does it recount the history of Israel? You'll be reading along and all of a sudden it'll just, there it is again. Why does it do that? Because that history is your history. Now, do you see the strength that history gives a person? And so the first thing Joshua does to frame this challenge, choose this day for yourselves whom you'll serve, is he does history. Now, not only does he do that, but he also looks to the future. Because at the end, it recounts Joshua's death. Uh, in verses 29 and 30, it says that, you know, when Joshua died, they went and buried him in his inheritance. Now, obviously, Joshua is not writing this part of the book. He's dead. 
But it's no mistake that an editor added this appendix to the end because what it does is it frames the challenge that Joshua gives. Jesus day, whom you will serve. And the question then becomes, will you, like Joshua, serve him until the end? Not only does the editor recount Joshua's death, but he mentions two other people from Israel's history who are also faithful until the end. He mentions Joseph and Eleazar. Both were faithful throughout their lifetimes and both remained faithful until the end. And the point of it being here is to show you not only did they remain faithful until the end, but that all three of them received their inheritance. All three were buried in the land of their inheritance. Even though Joseph died hundreds of years before in another land, they brought his bones and they put it in his place of inheritance. And without getting into too much detail, here's what this shows us. Christianity not only gives you a history, but it actually gives you a purpose in death. And so for Joshua, Joseph, Eleazar, their death, here's what the, the editor who puts this at the end, here's what he's trying to say. Their death equals their inheritance. That their dying is the, the receiving of their inheritance. And the same is true for the Christian. For the Christian, death equals inheritance. When we die in this life, we receive an inheritance in Christ that the Bible says will never perish, spoil, or fade. That's what gives you a purpose in death. It means death is not meaningless, but meaningful for those who remain faithful until the end. And so when he frames this challenge, he frames it with a history and a future. Uh, So that's how he frames it. Let's look at the challenge itself. The challenge itself is to make a choice about who you will serve. And in our text, Joshua, he gives them three choices. The first choice is you can serve the God of your ancestors, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one who brought you up out of Egypt and fought for you and gave you this land. You can, you can worship him. Or you can worship the gods of the past, the place you lived for 400 years, the gods of the Egyptians. Or you can worship the gods of the present, the place where you live now, the gods of the Amorites. Those are the choices. The question is about which God will you serve? Which God will you orient your entire life around? Which God will you frame your decisions? Which which God will give you an answer to who am I and what am I here for? Which God will give you a history and which God will give you a future and a purpose in death? And I want you to notice this. If you're reading your Bible, by the way, on your own, and you want to know what idea is most important in the text you're reading, one way to do that is to see what what words get repeated. Uh, And in chapter 24, 15 times in the translation you probably have in front of you, you'll see some form of the word serve. In Hebrew, actually, the root word for serve shows up 18 times in chapter 24. And so it's an important word. And Joshua's argument for this choice, then, is is meant to be absurd. You're going to serve. That's what he he wants to do. Serve. Pick a God who you're going to serve. And his argument is meant to be absurd. He's trying to say, really, there is no choice in a sense. And I I hesitate to use this kind of language from the pulpit, but this is actually the kind of language the Bible uses to talk about idols or false gods. Uh, Here's what Joshua is saying. So please forgive me for this word, but this is the, the vividness of the imagery of the word of God. He's saying the other choices are crap. The other gods are crap. The Old Testament Hebrew word for idols, it's the word uh, gililim, which can either mean, are you ready for this? 
pellets of dung or shapeless loggy things. So I think you get the idea. I'm not making this up. You might actually, there's an even stronger word than the one that I use that I won't use from the pulpit. And essentially what Joshua is saying is, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. The God of your ancestors, who has given you the land you're living in, or shapeless, loggy pellets of dung. Who will you serve? And what he's doing is he's making an argument from absurdity. If you've ever watched an absurd comedy, like Monty Python or just about any sketch comedy, you understand an argument from absurdity because every punchline is meant to be absurd. Uh, here, well, here's an example of an absurd, absurd joke from the internet, which means it's bound to be funny. So prepare yourself to roll on the floor. A dog walks into a hardware store and says to the owner, I'd like a job, please. The owner replies and says, we don't hire dogs. Why don't you join the circus? The dog says, what would the circus want with a plumber? On that, come on, come on, thank you. Absurd, right? It's absurd on a lot of levels. Uh, the main absurdity is that there's a talking dog who's trained as a plumber. I mean, that's totally absurd. And so is the idea, all through the Old and New Testament, that there is any God other than the one true living God. Because from the Bible's perspective, there's only one God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who revealed himself to Moses as the I am, as Yahweh. And so that's the argument Joshua is making. He's saying you can serve the one true God. You can come to him who has actually showed up in history. Time and time again, he has showed up in history and has come through with every promise he's ever made right down to the very detail. You can serve him or you can serve the idols that Yahweh proved to be false when he brought you up out of Egypt or you can choose to serve the idols he proved to be false when he gave you the land of your inheritance. Choose for yourself this day, will you serve the living God or shapeless, loggy pellets of dung? The choice is clear here. And so look at what the people say in verse 16. Then the people answered, far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. And then look at what they do. I love this. What do they do? They go on to recount their history. They're historians. And recounting their history, look at this. It actually shapes their decisions about the future. Because look at the end of verse 18. After they recount their history, what do they say in verse 18? We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. And I love what Joshua does next. Look what he says to them, verse 19. He said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. In verse 20, essentially, he'll consume you. In a sense, Joshua deepens the challenge to say, sure, you've made your choice now, but will you keep making the choice? The choice to serve the Lord not only requires a first-time commitment, but it's an ongoing, everyday commitment from here on out. In other words, it's, it's like a marriage. You make your vows to your, uh, you know, you're standing in your dress or your tuxedo, and you make your vows in front of all your family and friends, right? So you've made your choice that day. 
But then actually marriage is a daily commitment where not only did you choose for yourself that day when you wore the tuxedo and the dress, but you choose for yourself every day to be with that man or that woman. And that's what Joshua is wanting them to see. The choice to forsake all other gods and to serve the Lord is a covenant. It's not a whim. And that's why the text then goes on to recount Joshua then. What does it say? It says he made a covenant with them between the people and the Lord with witnesses and everything. They're a witness against themselves. There's a funny little thing about a stone being a witness against them. Because what do they say? Verse 21. But the people said to Joshua, no, 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 we will serve the Lord. And so they make that covenant. And it says in verse 31, Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him, who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. Do you know what that means? They did it. This generation was faithful until the end. Those who made the covenant remained faithful. But as you read on into the book of Judges, the next generation doesn't keep the covenant. And the very last line, if you skip all the way to the end of the next book, uh, the very last line of the book of Judges says this, In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. In other words, the faithfulness was gone. Well, now that we've explored that, let's return to this question that stands for us today. Is Jesus Christ Lord? And is he yours? Because the reality is you can't, you can't leave him on the shelf. You can't do nothing with him. You must decide something about him and you must decide for yourself. Don't allow someone else to decide for you who Jesus is. Don't let the high school science teacher decide for you. Or a famous physicist or an actor or a YouTube or even a friend or a relative. Don't let someone else decide for you who Jesus Christ is. Joshua says here, you choose for yourself. And so is Jesus Christ really the son of God in the flesh who died to save his people from their sins? Was he buried and raised from the dead on the third day? Is he ascended into heaven where he is given the name that is above every name? Or is he a liar? Or is he a lunatic? As Lewis said, you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord. And so which is it? So this is what he said. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And either he's telling the truth or he's lying. Let me go further. It's not all of what the New Testament says about him, but it sure is a good summary. And in your service order, um, that little piece of paper in there on the back side of it, you can follow along with me. I've given it to you in case you want it. This is a summary of who Jesus Christ is. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. But all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. But you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. It was the third hour when they crucified him. 
At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Therefore, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so is it true or not? Because if it is, then you must orient your entire life around him. And if it's not, then you can dismiss him. And you can go on and live however you choose, never giving him another thought. But you can't have something in between. Choose for yourself this day who you will serve. And I'll say along with Joshua, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. And if you want to choose Christ today for the first time in a little bit when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, there'll be a prayer on the other side of that that you can pray. And if you want to listen to nothing else I have to say and just do that now, then go for it. And for those who are already Christians, here's where you find your strength. This is, it's right in this. This is where you find it. It's in the lordship of Christ that you find your purpose and your strength for life. Because remember our two questions, who am I and what am I here for? Who am I? I'm a loved child of God. What am I here for? To worship God and to enjoy him forever. Which means you can throw away all the worthless idols you've been serving. Throw them away like shapeless loggy piles of dung. And instead, worship and serve Jesus Christ with your whole life. And if that is the foundation for your life, to know you are loved by God, to worship and enjoy him, then it gives you the purpose, the strength, the courage that you need to walk through all of life. And let me just briefly show you how. That's our third point, because there's an interesting line in here at the start of verse 14. So point three, the challenge to fear and faithfulness. Look at this line in verse 14. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. And there's two words in there I briefly want to explore uh, that show us how to worship and serve Christ. And the words are fear and faithfulness. And if you've been paying even a little bit of attention through this series in Joshua, the command to fear at this point, at the very end, might sound strange. 
Because remember how the book starts? It starts with be strong and courageous. Be strong and very courageous. This is four times in chapter one. Be strong and what? Courageous. And then those words and that, those themes are revisited on almost every page. And here at the end, though, it says to fear. Why? Well, look at the object of this fear. It says, now fear the Lord. And most of what I'm going to say here now comes from uh, Mike Reeves' book, uh, Rejoice and Tremble. And what he explains is in the Bible, fear of God and love of God are parallel things. But we struggle with that parallel because we misunderstand love. That's the point he's trying to make. And so we say things like, I love ice cream. I love a good book. I love a good laugh with my friends. And when we use love that freely, we can carelessly assume that love for God is just more of the same. Some enjoy cake. I enjoy God. But what Reeves explains is my love for one thing differs from my love for another because love changes according to the object. He gives a little thought experiment with three true statements. They're true for him. They're also true for me. So here's the statements. I love and have real affection for my dog. I love and have real affection for my wife. I love and have real affection for my God. Each statement is true. But saying them together should make you wince a little bit. In fact, if I had less pause in between them, you'd all feel very uncomfortable. And so it's obvious there must be something wrong if I mean exactly the same thing with each statement. Like, you hope that there's a difference between my love and affection for my dog and for my wife. And there is a difference. (laughs) The three loves differ because the object of the love differs. Uh, Here's what Mike goes on to say. He says, the living God is infinitely perfect and overwhelmingly beautiful in every way. And so we do not love him aright if our love is not a trembling, overwhelmed, and fearful love. In a sense, then, the trembling fear of God is a way of speaking about the intensity of our love for God. True fear of God is true love for God defined. So here's what Joshua is saying to Israel when he says, now fear the Lord. He's saying, love God more intensely than any other love. Love him more intensely than your career. Love him more intensely than your hobbies. Love him more intensely than your bank account. Love him even more intensely than your spouse or your children. Love him, get this, even more intensely than yourself. Actually love his identity more than you love your own. So much so that your own identity is shaped completely and utterly by his. Because listen to the results. Here's what Reeves says elsewhere in his book. He says, here is a truth for every Christian who needs the strength to rise above his or her anxieties or who needs the strength to pursue an unpopular but righteous course. Listen to this. The fear of the Lord is the only fear that imparts strength. Those who fear God are simultaneously humbled and strengthened before his beauty and magnificence. So fear of the Lord is the only fear that imparts strength. And so the first way we learn to worship and enjoy God is by fearing him rightly. In other words, loving him more intensely than any other love. 
But the second thing he says is faithfulness. Right? He says, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. And when we come to this word faithfulness, look, look where we're ending the book. Look where we're ending the book of Joshua. It's right where we started with this idea of faithfulness. We started out saying that when you think of what the Bible means when it says courage and strength, you can't think of Batman or Captain Marvel. That's not the Bible's reference for strength and courage. The Bible's reference for strength and courage are Ruth and Esther. It's Gideon. It's young David. It's Daniel. It's Joseph and Mary. All of these are men and women who worship the Lord alone and who did the things of everyday faithfulness, planting little seeds day by day that one day bore fruit right when they most needed it, right when they needed the strength, right when they needed the courage, it was there. And that's what gave them strength. That's what gives us strength. So the book ends right where it started with Courage that comes from fear and strength that comes from planting little seeds of faithfulness every day that will one day bear fruit. And I hope what you've seen throughout this series is that strength and courage, they're not special endowments for special people. They're available to all of us. If only we will learn to fear the Lord and to serve him faithfully day by day. And if we do that, and like Joshua, through the whole book, we will find that at any moment, we'll have all the strength and all the courage that we need. Let me pray. Lord, we need your strength, we need your courage. And so we worship you. We fear you. Love you. Lord, help us to serve you day by day with faithfulness. Help us to worship you rightly with an intense love. And Lord, in those moments that we need them, would you give us the strength and the courage that we need? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.